Quote, Christians are people learning who they are in Christ. We are being taught about our new identity. Do you see how deeply this new identity affects the life of a community? I heard a teacher say that if people were taught more about who they are, they wouldn't have to be told what to do. It would come naturally. When we see religious communities spending most of their time trying to convince people not to sin, we are seeing a community that has missed the point. The point isn't sin management. The point is who we are now. Often communities of believers in the New Testament are identified as saints. The word saints is a translation of the Greek word hagios, which means holy or set apart ones. Those who are in Christ, not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done. There is nothing we can do, and there is nothing we ever could have done to earn God's favor. We already have it. End quote. That's a quote from Rob Bell. I'd like to welcome you to Empires of Dirt and Grace. We are entering into the liturgical season of ordinary time, and for the next few months, we are going to sit in the reality that we are saints in Christ, and that the fundamental reality of being a Christian is being a follower of Jesus who is a person or a group of people learning who they are in Christ. We're being taught about our new identity, and day after day after day, moment after moment after moment, we have a choice. Will we embrace who we are, or will we remain with who we are not? You are a saint, my friend. I am a saint. We are saints. That doesn't mean that we are perfect, but it does mean that everything has changed. And now the growth starts. Welcome, welcome, welcome. A meditation entitled, A Letter to the Saints, Learning Who We Are in Christ, written by Chris Kamalski. What if we are approaching the scriptures counterintuitively to how they were meant to be read, savored, experienced, and entered into? 2 Timothy 3 reminds us that the scriptures are, quote, God-breathed, while Hebrews 4 contains the provocative idea that the, quote, word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If this is but a minute sample size of the perspective that Scripture takes on itself, why do we so frequently dismiss the power inherent behind and beneath these words? While many valid points could be made for the diminishment of Scripture in our lives, the fact remains Scripture and God's breath within it could have a more formational, lasting impact on us than it often does. Ironically, this is often particularly the case for those who are most familiar with the Scriptures themselves. And I am speaking to myself foremost here. Which leads me to wonder the following. Is there a veritable treasure chest within the scriptures that I have somehow overlooked or missed more recently in my journey of formation unto Christ? I want to postulate a simple idea. The scriptures and the New Testament epistles or letters in particular contain a wealth of formational truth that can develop and mature one's identity in Christ like nothing else. What if we deliberately sat with, sat underneath, sat on top of these powerful letters and chose to enter into the formational journey, which is a journey of remembrance into who we were always intended to be in God, 
a shedding of who we are no longer, and an embracing of our new selves, our sainthood in Christ, with renewed vigor. Simply put, what if we read these letters as if they were addressed to our true selves, saints in Christ, from a trusted friend, Paul our mentor, among others, inspired by the loving heart of God himself. I wonder how much we would change and change for the good. Quote, God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. That's from Ephesians 2.10 in the message. The following excerpt is a portion of an incredible teaching that my good friend Meinert von Pletzen gave to uh, the learning community of eChurch in Cape Town in early June 2016. Part of a larger teaching throughout the series of teachings throughout the day entitled The Bible Brand. We're going to excerpt portions of Minard's teaching over the next few months because they, they just they, they teach us and remind us of just the complexity and the beauty that is found within the scriptures. I'm excerpting this with his permission and with each church's permission, and I'm excited for you to learn from him. Minard von Pleston, take it away. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Ena jelle, ek het die heel eerste ding wat ek daar eindelijk moet doen, sommer net is een vinnig verkend. Ek moet sê, I must say, I must say that season 6 isn't as wild as the previous 5 seasons. But, there's a show on TV at the moment that you've probably heard of before. And my confession is a little bit that I am watching, I'm watching this, but it isn't necessarily a TV program that I would advocate. So it can stay within these four walls, but that I would preach about, that, that, that I watch and I want to say am involved in, almost, but, but that I watch. <laughs> and it's called Game of Thrones. And the, the thing with Game of, Game of Thrones, it has taken the world by storm. It has broken, yeah, spoiler. It, is, it has broken all records of TV, and it, is, um, it doesn't adhere to normal standards of television. For one thing, is there is about, they say Game of Thrones is like Twitter, because there's 140 characters and nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> and that's exactly how every episode is. So if you're one of the lead actors, and there's about 25 of them, of the lead cast in the show Game of Thrones, you probably get screen time of about 10 minutes per season. Every season has 10 episodes, and every episode is 55 minutes long. So Game of Thrones have negotiated the minimum of air breaks, and they have a title sequence of 120 seconds. That's two minutes, suddenly staring at visuals as the show begins. It doesn't have a section that, say, that, has that, um, that you normally see in TV shows that says, previously on Game of Thrones. Just to help you remember what's going on, they've cut that out. And you, you probably, and I have literally done this, have to take notes as you watch this show. But what it is, it's, it is a brilliant... <laughs> yeah, I don't take notes on Sunday, but I take notes on Monday evening when this does happen. And there's a couple of themes throughout, throughout the show. But, but nowadays, it is focusing on... Um, and please don't go about and say, Maynard said that you should go and watch Game of Thrones. But 
It has this one incredible theme that I love to study and just be aware of and see how culture comments on it. On the one hand, it's, it's got um, like a, a secular um, party that are interested in spiritual conversations, and I'm sure you've met people like that, and maybe you can identify a little bit with that side of our world. And then on the other hand, there's a deeply religious, fundamentalist side to the conversation as well that we read about in the papers every day. <clears throat> Whether it's part of the, what's happening politically in the United States at the moment, people waving Bibles around at political rallies, or whether it has to do with how people understand the identity and the purpose of God in places like Syria and the Middle East, or whether it has to do just with people in our local congregations having debates in coffee shops at churches about how they read the Bible and how they understand um, all the arguments that's in the papers nowadays about what the Bible teaches and does not teach. But there's always these two sides to it. And, um, and I want to show you a clip, but it's safe. It's not safe, but it's safe. Your Grace, what are we reading today? The Book of the Mother, Your Holiness. Chapter 3, verse 12. Ah, as water rounds the stones, smoothing what was jagged, so does a woman's love calm a man's brute nature. A wife sells her husband's wounds. A mother sings her son to sleep. You learn quickly. You know, there are some who know every verse of the sacred text, but don't have a drop of the mother's mercy in their blood. And savages, who can't read at all, who understand the father's wisdom. How brilliant is that? Did you get that, what he said? He said the following. He said, um, there are some people out there who know every verse of the sacred text, yet doesn't have a drop of the mother's mercy running through their blood. And then there are savages, people who can't even read, that understand the Father's wisdom. In Iriet Maandagavond, this was, um, this was part of the episode that aired on, on Monday evening, and I quickly found it on YouTube. How amazing is that? To show it to you today. And as I read, uh, oh, as I listened to that, as I watched the show, and this piece of dialogue jumped out at me, it immediately reminded me of this verse in Matthew 11 where Jesus said, I praise you for the Lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Isn't that almost exactly the same as what the high sparrow that's part of the faith militant in Game of Thrones tells Queen Marjorie? And it's so interesting for me how culture can sometimes reflect biblical truths. Um, there's also this part of the conversation. So about a year ago in, in Newsweek, um, this article was a featured article. The Bible is so misunderstood, it's a sin by Kurt Eichenwald. And uh, this is one of the quotes that was on there. And I put little icons for you guys at the top so that you can see where it is somebody that just had a quote or somebody or where it comes from the Bible so that we don't get confused. But it, it says, um, they are God, God's frauds. And he talks about us now at the moment, right, Christians. Cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they eat with less care and they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who are unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring the Bible's words. And this, I mean, this is, uh, this is terrible critique on how we understand and embody the truths of scripture and how we go about with the Bible. And I've often wondered why that is. 
because I can find myself on either side of this dichotomy. I can find myself as a curious secularist, but I can always identify so much with a militant, fundamentalist, religious person. And I'm not always sure which one I ought to be or which one is the most, and I have this tension inside of me. And especially when it comes to reading the Bible and understanding the truth of Scripture, and dare I say, the actual Word of God, where this becomes most prevalent, where this breaks through the surface in how I interact with people and how I engage with the world. And I think part of it has to do, I mean, there's many reasons that we can talk about and what the reasons for this is, but for me, in my season of life, now I want to share with you something that I'm thinking about. And it has to do a little bit with how our minds work. And I've been reading some of the incredible stuff that Stefan has been sharing online, and you should do yourself a favor and expose yourself to some of that content. And I also had um, this conversation with my friend Dion a couple of uh, weeks ago about this exact same thing, about what they call cognitive neuroscience. There's lots of various um, neurosciences out there, but cognitive neuroscience is the study of how your brain makes meaning through what you think you can see or know. And here's the problem with how our cognitive neuroscience works, is your brain is designed for basically two things. It's to keep you sane and to keep you safe. And the way your brain keeps you sane is to kind of remember what has happened in the past and use that to predict what will happen in the future and take all your brain's processing power off of those impulses that come into and only allow about the 20% that your brain thinks is new information that you should know about. That's why you can drive an hour through the traffic to work and get out of the car and don't remember driving because your brain was an autopilot for that whole time because it is based on information that you already know. You've driven through that traffic light 1,000 times before and the way you've driven it before is probably the same way you'll be driving through it again and your brain reserves its processing power, its RAM, to focus on things that, you, that it thinks you need to know is new information only. And that's how we stay safe. Because if we were attuned to every single sensory um, impulse coming to us, we would literally lose our minds. <coughs> so what Elon Musk published um, about uh, two weeks ago online about how we live in a simulation and how all of this is a game. Have you guys seen that? It, that I mean, I can imagine that that can be true, right? Because our brains kind of run the world for us, in a sense. And we need to trust that what we perceive through our minds is the right thing, um, which it isn't, and here might be the problem. It might not always be true. It also keeps us safe in the, in, the, in, the, in the same way, through predictability, and to help us understand the world through past experiences, and decode what comes to us as new information only in the light of, and here's some of the words that might help us understand this better, in the light of our biases and our prejudices and our preconceived ideas and what we already believe to be true about the world. And that's how we stay sane and safe in the world. But it's also what is keeping us from experiencing new things, from learning truths, new truths that are embedded within old truths, and to not only see things as they are, but to be able to look at things from a fresh and new perspective and see things as they are not. So Catherine Schultz did this brilliant TED talk called How to Be Wrong. She also wrote a book about it. She calls herself a wrongologist, and it is people that it, and it is a study of, of, of studying of how people can be wrong and teaching people to be open to be wrong. And she says this about our mind. She says, the miracle of your mind isn't that you can see the world as it is. 
That is not the molecule. That's just the basic function of it. It's that she can see the world as it isn't because the, the assumption that she's making with wrongology or studying the science of being wrong is that you can circumvent that process of your mind at your choosing, but it takes practice. <coughs> and it takes a deep emotional intelligence. In fact, it takes the willingness to be wrong sometimes. Stefan Fedelik, yeah, it takes the willingness to be wrong, yeah. which is, <laughs> yeah, and as I said, there are many things on a day like this that we can talk about how to read the Bible right, how to understand scriptures, how to engage in an authentic and faithful way with scriptures, but I think for our season where we live, in the Western Cape and in Pretoria, in this time, in 2016, in the world where we are now, on the, the grand trajectory since creation, where God is journeying with, um, with us at this moment, I think one of the most valuable things we can think about and talk about when we think about scriptures is um, to ask ourselves a question. When it comes to what do the things that we believe are ultimately right, how willing are we to be wrong concerning them? And that is a terrible question to be faced with. And, um, but I believe it's key uh, for, for us to just constantly ask that question and ponder on that. So, um, onwards. Here are some things. Um, I'm going to quickly run through five things. These are not, I know there's, there's traditional exegesis and there's responsible hermeneutics and there's stuff like cultural and literal context, which I didn't study because at the time when you guys were studying that, I was studying family law and criminal law and uh, case law and all those kinds of things. So I'm not a learned person. As I'm one of the people that um, the High Spirit refers to as the savages that can't even read when it comes to these things. Or as Jesus said, I'm one of the children, but hopefully... There's been things that has been revealed to all of us collectively that we intuitively know might be true. That's not necessarily academic truths about the Bible. That's just for the purposes of today. We um, expect those as self-evident, as, self as givens, and then think about maybe some other things that we could also bring to the table as we engage with Scripture. So these are some five deeply personal guidelines for me, and I'm sharing with them with you today as beta versions of, as works in progress, of how um, of things that I want to keep in mind as I interact with the Bible, and all of these are quotes that I've read somewhere, I've learned about that it's just kind of stuck with me, and um, and I hope that uh, the Lord had a hand in that. So here's the first thing: Robel wrote a blog series. He actually wrote a whole book, um, and depending on where you um, how you feel about Robel, the work that he's doing will probably tint uh, what I'm going to share with you now, but. He wrote a whole book and then decided not to publish it, but to share it in blog posts. So he shared it in a hundred and something blog posts all at once overnight, published all of them overnight. And you can find it on uh, Tumblr, on robel.tumblr.com, and it's called What is the Bible? And the very first thing he shared about how to understand the Bible is that you need to realize this thing, which seems like a very obvious thing, but at some time in history, somebody went somewhere and they wrote something down. And it's as human as it is, it is as plain as it is, it's as simple as it is, but we tend to forgive this, uh, forget this, forgive it. <laughs> yes, we tend to forgive and forget it. But I only learned recently about 
the, the, um, about the, um, the Muslim belief that Muhammad received the Quran as it is, perfect in every instance, and it dropped, literally dropped from the sky. So with us, it couldn't be farther from the truth. <coughs> so the Bible, as a collection of all these books, were written across a vast span of history by deeply um, uh, diverse individuals with their own lives and their own stresses and their own worries. And we have the proof of that. And that is what the Bible is. And we kind of have to, when we talk to people about the Bible, have to keep that in the front of our minds, right? Because it influences how we think about the Scripture. He writes this, the Bible did not drop out of the sky, it was written by people. There were points they wanted to make, things they wanted their readers to see, insights they wanted to share. These writers, it's important to point out, were real people living in real places at real times. And their purposes and intents and agendas were shaped by their times and places and contexts and economies and politics and religion and technology and countless other factors. You can also see that Rob Bell didn't go to writing school. <laughs> when people charge in with great insistence that this is God's work, all the while neglecting the very real humanity of these books, they can inadvertently rob these writings of their sacred power. And that is so interesting for me. All because of starting in the wrong place. You start with a human or the person. You ask those questions. You enter there. You direct your energies to understanding why these people wrote these books. Because whatever divine you find in it, you find the divine through the humanity of it, not around it. And what is so interesting for me is if I have sometimes discussions, sometimes I find myself on the fundamentalist side of this discussion, uh, where I feel very uncomfortable with this kind of argument, but sometimes I find myself on the curious, secular side of the discussion and then have other fundamentalist friends uh, or very zealous friends that I have this conversation with. And it's so interesting for me to learn from them that sometimes the move towards the humanity of the Bible always feels a little bit for people as you're subtracting from the holiness of it, from the divinity of it. And the first thing that I want to introduce today is that those are two things that are creating momentum in the same direction. That for me now in my life, the more I can grapple with and get to understand and learn about, the, and I want to add this word, but I'm not exactly sure if this is the right word, but excuse me if it's not, because we tend to use the polar opposite of this, words, of this word in our description of the holy text, but in the fallible humanity of it. It's almost the more I understand the fallible humanity of the people that wrote these texts, the deeper my understanding goes of how it was inspired by God and how it all comes together, and how it has holy meaning and divine power locked in the humanity of it. Does that make sense? So, you guys have all seen this. But I'm not sure if we have all taught this, if we have all sat down with the people that have been entrusted to us, whether it's at home group or at Sunday morning or somewhere, and just tell people, did you know that all these books were written when people were, were, were under a foreign government that they didn't trust? Did you know that Esther and Daniel were at the Morales at the same time? And, that, and give them some context about how they were actually leaders in a pagan government that were totally um, enemies of, of their deep personal faith? And, and, um, and give some context. Did you know that there were about 400 years here that happened with, that we don't know anything about, that nobody ever written about, that there's nothing in the Bible about. There's some stuff like this that I'm not sure that ordinary people like me actually know and have an appreciation of 
in the Bible. And once we can responsibly and authentically explain some of the human humanity or the humanness that goes into these texts, I'm convinced that the people that we preach to and teach with are going to have a deeper understanding of how God, of, of seeing um, the evidence of God throughout this whole process. Formational Rhythm, Opening My Heart to God. This is an exercise that I developed as a way to intentionally open up our hearts to the Lord and to His work in us. You could think of it as a devotional practice that you could put into your life in a regular way that has the possibility for the Spirit to intersect with you and really change you into who you really are. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19 The following is developed by Chris Komalski. Step number one. Pause. Begin with 60 seconds of silence, opening your hands, palms up to God, inviting Him to speak to you during this time of formation and prayer. Literally do that now. Step two, review. Take another 60 seconds to review your tangible step of action from the previous day. A note, if you're doing this for the first time, you don't have this step yet, but as you get into a rhythm, you will. So, back to review. How did you act tangibly on what God spoke to you? Capture what you did in two to three written sentences. And just a second note, if you forgot to act, be gentle on yourself. God loves you deeply. Look for an opportunity to act in love towards someone today. Step three, listen. Read the scripture text slowly two times, pausing when a word or phrase stands out to you. Listen for the living word of Jesus speaking to your heart as you read, asking the Spirit, what are you desiring to say to me in this moment, God? When you feel like you hear the word of the Lord speak, Write down the word or phrase that stood out to you. Step number four, think. Return to the scripture text a third time, this time for the purpose of further meditation. Meditation, just to remind you in the Christian tradition, is chewing on what you read or heard as if you were chewing on a piece of gum. And I want you to think critically about what you have read. Make some notes in your journal about what you read using the literary technique called the five W's and an H. The following questions. Who is present in this passage? What is taking place? Where is the scene located? When, within the larger story of God, is this happening? Why do the characters respond in the way they do? And how is God speaking to your heart through this text? Step five, pray. Respond to what God has been speaking to you, continuing the conversation. Capture your prayers through journaling what you desire to see happen, a confession of your heart, or something else God might be saying to you. Step six, go. What tangible step of action can you take in the next 24 hours, the next day, to live out what God is speaking to you? Write down your step in one sentence or phrase. You'll review your step 
at the start of your next formational rhythm. Again, this formational rhythm tool was originally developed by Chris Komalski, but please feel free to use it as you would like. The following scripture excerpt is taken from the message translation or paraphrase of the book of Ephesians, which I encourage you to read in full. I've adapted it slightly to read as it should, and was originally intended to be read, which is as a letter. I'm going to read an excerpt from Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 2, roughly verse 10. Dear Saint in Christ, I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle, a special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to you faithful believers in Ephesus. I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God our Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. How blessed is God, and what a blessing He is. He's the Father of our Master, Jesus Christ, and He takes us to the high places of blessing in Him. Long before He laid down earth's foundations, He had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of His love, to be made whole and holy by His love. Long, long ago, He decided to adopt us into His family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and in everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, you found yourself home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. That's why, when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask I ask the God of our Master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing Him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what it is He is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life He has for us, His followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of His work in us who trust Him, endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven. 
in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did this all on his own, with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven, in the company of Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving us is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. This is an excerpt, a letter to you, the saints, from Paul, our mentor, excerpted from the letter to the church in Ephesus, chapters 1 and 2, in the book and the paraphrase of the message. Just a bit of an administrative note. In the email blast, as well as on the blog, the Liturgical Year blog, as well as in the podcast notes, there's some information on a schedule for the next several weeks, the last few weeks of July, or whenever you do this, actually that breaks down the book of Ephesians into smaller chunks. It still encourages, to, is, encourages you to read it in the whole, to read it out loud, to read it with other people. There's also a link in that PDF file to an incredible YouTube clip from Passion 2012, uh, where the book of Ephesians was read aloud in its entirety before about 42,000 university students. If you search Passion 2012 Ephesians, you'll be able to find it. But I just want to encourage you to find that schedule in that PDF and build rhythm into your life, even for five minutes each day, to use the tool Formational Rhythm, Opening My Heart to God, with a chunk of Ephesians to engage the book and the letter in a more personal way to yourself. Let us know how this is going and how we can adjust this. We're going to experiment with this over the next few months with a bunch of these letters to us, the saints. But I encourage you to dive in and make this your own with those that you love most. And a benediction of sorts. Again, this is an excerpt from Rob Bell.
Christians are people learning who they are in Christ. We are being taught about our new identity. Do you see how deeply this new identity affects the life of a community? I heard a teacher say that if people were taught more about who they are, they wouldn't have to be told what to do. It would come naturally. When we see religious communities spending most of their time trying to convince people not to sin, we are seeing a community that has missed the point. The point isn't sin management. The point is who we are now. Often communities of believers in the New Testament are identified as saints. The word saints is a translation of the Greek word hagios, which means holy or set apart ones, those who are in Christ, not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done. There is nothing we can do, and there is nothing we ever could have done to earn God's favor. We already have it. I pray this blessing over your lives, and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may you enter in to the identity that you already are, which is in Christ, holy and set apart. You are a saint, my friend. I am a saint. We are saints. And it's time we live up to that. Amen.